Forgiveness, or rather unforgiveness, is in the news this week. Highlighting excerpts from former First Lady Michelle Obama's forthcoming book, Becoming, headlines read, Michelle Obama will never forgive Trump for birtherism. Birtherism refers to the publicity around Donald Trump publicly challenging Barack Obama's citizenship, demanding that he show his birth certificate. This is what she wrote. The whole thing was crazy and mean-spirited, of course. It's underlying bigotry and xenophobia hardly concealed. But it was also dangerous, deliberately meant to stir up the wingnuts and kooks. What if someone with an unstable mind loaded a gun and drove to Washington? What if that person went looking for our girls? Donald Trump, with his loud and reckless innuendos, was putting my family's safety at risk. And for this, I'd never forgive him. Though the headline in Vanity Fair reads, Michelle Obama will never forgive Trump, Notice she writes, I'd, not I'll. I would never forgive him, not I will never forgive him, suggesting possibly that what she's saying is something like, if anything had happened to my family, I would not forgive him. I, of course, don't know that for sure. This is only to point out that our culture is prone to skipping over complexity or nuance. Either way, Michelle Obama is stating honestly that there are things which she would not forgive. And if forgiveness depends at all upon the offender recognizing the harm done and assuming responsibility for the action, Obama is only confirmed in her decision by Trump's response. She got paid a lot of money to write a book, he said, and they always insist you come up with a little controversial. Well, I'll give you a little controversy back. I'll never forgive him, meaning President Barack Obama, for what he did to our U.S. military by not funding it properly. I'll never forgive him for what he did in many other ways, which I'll talk to you about in the future, unquote. Gee, we can't wait, right? Needless to say, we will not be receiving any pointers about forgiveness, either offering or receiving, from our president. But these stories did make me wonder what it is we are really talking about when we talk about forgiveness. And I think it is worth exploring if Charles Griswold, drawing from a long tradition of thoughts on forgiveness from the world's religions and secular ethical traditions, if Charles Griswold is even partially correct in writing that forgiveness is one answer to despair and that forgiveness is what a good person would seek because it expresses fundamental moral ideals like spiritual growth and renewal, truth-telling, Mutual, respectful address, responsibility and respect, reconciliation and peace. If that is even close to the truth, then it would serve us well to know what we mean by forgiveness, right? Is it a feeling? An action? 
an interaction? Does it require a giver and receiver? Is it an awareness? What expectations do we bring to forgiveness? How does it connect or not with justice and accountability? What potential does it hold for healing and happiness? Does it also hold potential for harm? (coughs) Excuse me. Forgiveness is defined in one source as, number one, to excuse for a fault or an offense, pardon. Two, to renounce anger or resentment against. Three, to absolve from payment of a debt, for example. Now, notice the first definition, to excuse for an offense, pardon. The word pardon is in the news much more often than forgiveness. Recently, in reference to presidential pardons, both those granted, like that to Sheriff Joe Arpaio, and those that are deemed possible or probable with the prospect of more indictments in the Mueller investigation. A Supreme Court decision called Burdick versus the United States in 1915 aside, There is some controversy among legal experts about whether accepting a presidential pardon necessitates or even implies an admission of guilt. Certainly, Joe Arpaio, having accepted the pardon, continued to justify despicable actions and proclaim his innocence. And the idea of preemptive pardons turns the whole idea of accountability on its head as one is forgiven for we don't yet know what. But our corrupted political culture is such that when confronted with wrongdoing, the offender either doubles down on the offending action, behavior, or comment, distracts by pointing back at the accuser, as President Trump did by saying basically, well, I don't forgive you more. (laughs) Or seeks to escape the consequences, in this case through what is known as a pardon, but which may be more rightly understood as a pass. Whatever else forgiveness may be, I don't think it is rightly understood as a free pass entitling the recipient to sidestep responsibility and avoid accountability. If we understand forgiveness this way, it is no wonder that it is held in suspicion, considered a weak and ignoble response to injustice, and avoided by people of good conscience. True forgiveness, I would suggest, holds a recognition that a wrong was done. It is a move not always completed toward reconciliation. It is a possibility for restoration of the well-being of a community or a relationship or simply of one's own inner life. And let me say at this point that I am keenly aware of my privileged location in this society as I present this sermon. It is decidedly not up to me, white, male, cisgender, heterosexual, financially secure, 
to preach the virtues of forgiving the brutality, oppression, abuse, and injustice suffered by marginalized groups and individuals, people of color, the poor and homeless, immigrant, Jewish and Muslim, transgender, lesbian and gay communities, women, all those who have not only suffered historically but continue to suffer in a white supremacist, patriarchal, self-congratulating society which when confronted with the harm it's inflicted vacillates erratically between the twin poles of amnesia and denial. I felt a twinge of uneasiness in even presenting Joseph Jordan's story as he adopted a universalism that embraced both oppressed and oppressor. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, I love that universalist message, but I realize that my understanding of it has not been tested in any manner that would approach his lived experience or that of so many others. And if I proceed to highlight what I understand as the gifts of forgiveness for the person offering forgiveness, it is not to excuse the oppressor's and abusers, or to sanction any lull in or abdication of the work toward a truly just and equitable society. It is a perverted form of forgiveness that is required of those who suffer harm to provide a pass to those who cause harm. And I also recognize and understand through the experience of others that one of the ways that oppression and abuse harms people is by trapping them in a cycle of hatred and resentment. Forgiveness, in this sense, can be an act of resistance. Forgiveness is often seen as a gift to another person. There is no doubt of the value of that gift when we have done something for which we are truly sorry. We are not, at that point, asking for justice. We know what we deserve. We are seeking forgiveness. And when the other person provides forgiveness, says they will not hold this, whatever it is, against us, offers perhaps a path toward reconciliation and restoration, well, we can be nothing but grateful. We are excused, pardoned, freed partially at least from the continuing regret and remorse that our actions have produced. We are given another chance. But sometimes we are faced with the choice of whether to forgive someone who may not be asking. Someone who may not even believe they have done anything wrong. Someone who is not taking the responsibility for an action that has hurt us. What then? Why extend the gift of pardon to someone who won't even admit they need it? Why absolve the one who doesn't take responsibility for the offense? Can we offer forgiveness when they so obviously do not deserve it? What are the alternatives? I can choose not to forgive someone 
but I run the risk of carrying that hurt and resentment with me. I may imagine that somehow that will punish the other person, but if they are oblivious of their offense, they are also oblivious of the chastening power of my ever-growing grudge against them. They don't care. Somebody said resentment is like drinking poison trying to kill the other person. My willingness or unwillingness to forgive does not, for whatever reason, make an impact on their lives. In this case, it doesn't matter to the forgiven. But it can matter to the forgiver. Grudges, resentment, thirst for revenge can turn inside a person for years, but the only damage that is done is done to the person that holds on to these emotions. Our forgiveness, even for those who stubbornly refuse to see the harm they've caused, can be a gift to ourselves. We get to lay down the burden of those bad feelings. We get to forgive, not because they deserve it, but because we do. That is a choice. That moves from the first definition we heard from the dictionary to excuse for a fault or an offense, to pardon, to the second to renounce anger or resentment against. We don't imagine that we can miraculously cleanse ourselves of anger or resentment, but we, by forgiving, promise to renounce it, to let go of it. We promise not to feed it, nor to use it against that person. So what is my message? Forgive and forget. Forgetting is not necessarily the companion to forgiveness. It may well be that forgiveness sharpens our memories, cleanses our memories in a sense, removing the fog of hurt and resentment that clouds our vision. Keeping in mind that brain research suggests that memories are not so much stored as reassembled each time we recall something. It is possible that we will create a new memory out of the same raw materials. We may retain the memory, but it will not be the obsessive probing of our hurt. The memory will have lost its sting because we have renounced, we will practice renouncing anger and resentment. And I don't mean to give the impression that forgiveness is an easy choice or even a necessary choice in every circumstance. Forgiveness requires work and attention. Forgiveness offered casually may be denial, masquerading as forgiveness. It is important to know what it is that we are forgiving, to search within myself to see if the apparent offense is really what I'm upset about. Look at the things that often tear relationships apart and think how many times the precipitating incident, the identified offense, the apparent problem is not the real problem. I must know what I am forgiving before I can effectively forgive. It might be deep. It might be painful to explore. That is a cost of forgiveness. I need to be honest with myself. I am guessing 
there are people here that have experienced things which may feel, which may be unforgivable. Violence, abuse, betrayal, witnessing humans at their most vicious and uncaring. I would not presume to tell you that you should forgive or if you do, what that forgiveness should look like. But I am saying that forgiveness, if it comes, however it may come, may be a way of reclaiming one's power, one's choice. And it can be a wise choice when we consider the alternatives. Unlike bitterness and hatred and despair, it does not threaten to consume us, but rather holds the potential to free us. So forgiveness covers a lot of ground. Is it a feeling? Yes. An action? Yes. An interaction? Yes. Does it require a giver and receiver? Yes and no. Does it hold potential for healing as well as harm? Yes. Reinhold Niebuhr calls it the final form of love. And like love, it is a single word in the English language that is saddled with a variety of meanings and approaches and complexities. But however I define it, I tend to agree with Charles Griswold that few of us are altogether free of the need for forgiveness. And in my ministry, I have found that people are often most reluctant to forgive themselves. But if forgiveness actually includes ideals of spiritual growth and renewal, responsibility and respect, reconciliation and peace, why not begin there? Forgive yourself. Don't struggle to give yourself a pass, but don't hesitate to give yourself some peace. So may it be.